everyone, welcome back to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Uh, Scottish folklore is absolutely jam-packed full of stories about lovers, mostly tragic, and since this episode is coming to you on Valentine's Day, we decided to pay tribute to the lovers of Scottish folklore. This popular Scottish story slash poem comes from the Borders and it's thought to have first been written around 1549. Of course, there have been various tellings and retellings since, um, and also in loads of different formats, including plays, films, books, and even music. The original story was even written as a ballad, um, so that could be taken as quite a short story or it could have been um, a bit more musical, depending on which way you wanted to interpret it. Um, but the appeal of the story seems to come from its ability to flip the format of usual fairy storytelling in that the damsel in distress is not a damsel in distress, it's actually a young man who needs saving and he's rescued by a brave woman. So the story is set in the forest of Carterhaw um, by the Ettrick River. At the beginning of the story, Tamlin is out hunting with his grandfather and he has a riding accident where he falls off his horse, only to be found and captured by the queen of the fairies who dwells in the woods. She makes Tam a knight in her elven army, and he loses his mortality, becoming a guardian of the forest. The locals would tell stories of the guards and how cruel their nature was. They were known to let young women walk through the forest safely, but only if they gave them a treasure in return. If they couldn't do that, the guards would take their virginity. And despite the warnings, the Earl's daughter, Janet, went into the forest one day and followed a path that led to a well. This is where she meets Tam, who tries initially to warn her and asks why she's in the forest when she should surely know the tales. But being the Earl's daughter, she tells him that the forest belongs to her and it was a gift from her father, so no one could do her harm as they were living on her land. Tam then charms her by gifting, gifting her a rose and she falls victim to the fairy magic and later discovers she's pregnant with Tam's child. Upon realising this, Janet goes back into the forest to seek out Tam. He once again appears at the well, and during their conversation, Janet discovers that Tam was once a mortal man, and that now as part of the fairy community, he fears his time would be up, and he would soon be sacrificed to Tithe of Hell, a tradition that occurred once every seven years. He asks her to help him and save him, telling, him, telling her that the veil between the fairy and mortal worlds is thinnest on Halloween, and this would provide the opportune moment for him to make his escape, with her assistance of course. At midnight on Halloween, the elven guards and the fairies would be riding at the Miles Cross crossroads, and it would be at this location that they planned to meet, but only if she truly loved him, as this would break the fairy magic hold and he'd be free from the fairy queen. However, it wouldn't be an easy rescue. Tam warned Janet the fairy queen would trick her into leaving him by cursing Tam or transforming him into various scary creatures and beasts anything from snakes to lions, and even objects such as fiery coal or a hot iron. But she must not let go no matter what, and when the moment arrived, she would need to use all her strength to throw him into the well, which would break the curse and he would return to being human again. Janet manages the quest and battles her pain, the burning fire, and all her fears, eventually freeing Tam from the fairies, which returned to his human form. The fairy queen, enraged that she had lost her faithful knight, back to the world of the humans, curses after the pair, saying she wished she'd taken Tam's heart of flesh and replaced it with a cold rock, 
or taken out his eyes and replaced them with wooden ones, so that way he would have never seen Janet and fallen in love with her. The story doesn't really tell us what happens next, so we can only hope it was a happily ever after, but we can't know for sure. Was it fairy magic that brought the pair together in the first place? Did the fairy queen seek revenge? Perhaps we'll never know. But one thing for sure is that you can visit the Tamlane's Well, which is a real place, a real well. Um, it's a bit more shallow than you might imagine, um, but it is a place that exists and you can visit when you go to the forest near the Ettrick River. So <laughs> a well that we've been to. Yeah. Yeah. And we got lost in Carter Hall Wood. We lo- got lost in Carter Hall Wood. <laughs> it's dangerous. That is very dangerous. <laughs> My favourite thing about this ballad is there's obviously a lot of discourse about um, Janet and whether it's, you know, w- whether it was assault that happened to her to get her Tamlin's baby or not. Um, but my favourite take on it is that, so in the ballad, basically, it goes through all the rules about what you shouldn't do. So you shouldn't braid your hair, you shouldn't wear green, you shouldn't wear your skirt above the knee. Um, or, you know, Tamlin's... Tamlin's she did... Uh, she wanted to go to that forest and get some fae. I, I stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> she knew what she was doing. <laughs> I did not actually know that detail. Um, but yeah, she did every single one of those things and somehow... I think she was just maybe a bit cocky. She was like, I own this forest. No one's going <laughs> to harm me. I'm the Earl's daughter. I love the, how many different <laughs> towns of that one there's been, though. There, that one's one that I've seen in loads of different books and stories. It seems to be a really popular one. Mm-hmm. And Walter Scott's version as well that he did was amazing, so. I think his is probably my favourite version of it. I was just thinking there as well, like, all the things that... So, because the story has almost flipped the kind of standard of damsel in distress, woman that gets saved by man, in all of those stories, the knights that save the damsel always know there's going to be danger lurking, but they still just plough on through. And I think it's kind of cool that she does exactly the same. But we kind of... (laughs) I don't know, I think we assume she's going to be in more danger because she's a girl. Yeah. Actually, her age isn't really specified. It does say young female, yeah. young girl, yeah. but like you can kind of assume she's going to be... At least for the time, she must have been like teens. <laughs> I, I do love the whole the, like the gender stereotype flipped on its head from such a... It, it's something I think we're fairly used to these days. But it, it must have been such a strange thing back when, you know, when it was popular. It's been around for so long, and I just love that image of her like hauling him off a horse and catching him. The physical strength it must have taken as well, because like he turns into, well, the fairy queen turns him into so many things, and she still grips onto him. I think it's like holding on to this lion. Yeah, <laughs> she's a badass. Yeah, love Janet. What I also like about this one is that most, well, a lot, I've been reading lots of folklore recently, even more so than usual, and a lot of the tragic ones have all been because of a parent of some sort intervening in some way or getting some magic involved and stuff. And this one, we don't know what the dad's up to. He's just like, on you go up, you're going to chase after a, a parade of elves on Halloween, on you go. <laughs> Off down to the woods in a wee short skirt, on you go. <laughs> Whatever you feel like. <laughs> I think there was a little bit in Walter Scott's one about when she came back pregnant, but other than that, he seems yeah. to have very little comments as to well, the scenario. When she comes back pregnant, pregnant, her dad's like, "All right, which one of my lords was it?" And she's like, 
None of them. Who was it this time? Yeah. <laughs> and you can actually go up their castle as well, the one that's in the thing. It's a, an old kind of borders tower castle mm-hmm. on the Duke of Buclus estate. So, yeah. That's one of the ones that um, it could be. The other one is um, now a wedding venue. So you can get yeah. married in Janet's yeah. dad's castle. So it depends which one you want to pick of it being. Mine's is still that it's probably the one that's a bit more of a ruin now because it's just its proximity to everything else that's meant mm-hmm. to be in the legend is a bit more convenient. But it doesn't say how long a ride out she went. It could be the other one quite easily as well. Um, what I will say is if any listeners want to know more about or want to go more deep into the Ballad of Tamlin, um, Rosie from Into the Greenwood did a whole project on it at university um, and her and Kathy went very deep into it in episode 33 of our podcast so if you want more about Tamlin I would recommend going back to that Today I want to talk a little bit about a story that's often linked to the superstition of White Heather in Scotland, white heather is thought to be lucky, and it's a popular tradition at Scottish weddings for the bride to carry a sprig of it in her bouquet and the groom to wear a sprig in his buttonhole for good luck. It was actually Queen Victoria who popularised that tradition, as she did with so many other aspects of Highland culture, and this little story is said to be from the 3rd century, and it's where it's thought that this tradition about the white heather being lucky came from. The Celtic bard Oshin had a very beautiful and very kind daughter named Malvina, and Malvina was betrothed to Oscar, the finest warrior in the tribe. The couple were happy and well suited, but one day Oscar was called away to war. Malvina wasn't concerned because there was no fight that Oscar couldn't win. However, one dark day a messenger came to the community and informed Malvina of her lover's tragic end in battle, and he presented her with a little sprig of purple heather, a final token of love given by Oscar in his dying moments. Heartbroken, Malvina wept over the sprig, clutching it tight to her heart, and as her tears fell, the heather turned a snowy white. Days passed, and Malvina wandered the moors, crying deeply, while her father played songs of mourning, and wherever the tears fell, the purple heather turned white. Malvina sighed and said, Although this is a symbol of my sorrow, may the white heather bring good fortune to all who find it. So, that's the story, and I don't know about you guys, but I personally felt like the wee line at the end where Malvina says that she hopes the white heather becomes a symbol of good fortune was a little bit strange. Like, to me, it feels like someone's going out of their way to make a point and tie the story in with the idea of white heather being lucky. Um, It just doesn't feel consistent with the rest of the feel of the story, and it just feels a little bit too nice. So I had a look at some other heather folklore, and one that was mentioned a few times is that heather is stained purple because of the blood of either the clans or the Picts, depending on which version you read. And if you come across a rare patch of white heather, that's where the blood hasn't been spilled. So to me, it makes more sense that maybe um, Oscar gave Malvina a white sprig and his blood stained it purple, or that maybe it could act as like an origin myth for the reason heather is purple. So. The heather was originally white and then Malvina cried on it and it turned purple and then any little patch of white would be untouched by her grief and therefore good luck. That just makes more sense in my head than I'm sad, I've turned heather white and I hope it makes, I hope it's now lucky. (laughs) Um, There's also a tradition of heather being lucky in battle specifically. So in 1544, 
Clan Ranald attributed victory to the fact that they wore white heather in their bonnets, and Clooney of Clan Macpherson claimed he escaped the Battle of Culloden because his pursuers didn't see him sleeping on a patch of heather, of, of white heather. So, given the belief that white heather was lucky in battle, it makes more sense, in my head at least, that Oscar went off to battle wearing his wee white sprig of heather for good luck, and then it was stained purple from his blood rather than turning white with Malvina's tears. Um, but that's just my thoughts, and that's the story of Malvina and Oscar. I think it's a good point that you made as well, and it's one of these difficulties in that I think lots of folk stories have been sort of romanticised or or um, Victorianised mm-hmm. made a bit nicer and taken off the, the sort of nasty bit or you know like oh I don't that's too we don't want to include you know mm-hmm. that we're going we're gonna to just did you just change it a little bit thinking I'm not doing any difficulties mm-hmm. it's a very Victorian vibe I feel like it's like they were like oh we don't want it to end with her being sad so we're going to say we're, we're going to leave it with Oh, you know, this is good luck now. Hooray! And leave like yeah, a better I'm taste. Look for that. Nice positive spin yeah. on things. <laughs> and then being like, we don't really want to have blood in this nice, sad, tragic story on the moors. We'll maybe <laughs> get <laughs> yeah. rid of that bit. <laughs> yeah, the Victorians had a a fun way of of picking which bits of traditional folklore they liked and then just adding some flowers to the rest of it. Yeah. A couple of things I like is there's a uh, a mountain or a hill or whatever it is up somewhere in the highlands, I can't remember exactly where, called the Devil's Point. And it's called the Devil's Point because Queen Victoria said, what's that? And the gilly, whoever it was with, said, oh, that's uh, it's the Devil's Point. But actually it's known as the Devil's Penis. <laughs> you couldn't say that to the Queen. <laughs> the old man's stone on Sky is supposedly part of a giant that's been, that was buried when he died, buried by a landslide. And obviously the Victorians likes to say that it was his thumb, but the tradition apparently before that was actually it was his penis. <laughs> it was this big, big sticky up bit. But obviously they were like, we can't go to tell people there's a big giant penis. Out <laughs> <laughs> the mountainside, you've got to make it a bit more genteel than that. Humans have always loved the dick joke. <laughs> what I thought was quite ironic about this is that... Um, you know, if you come from like an outsider's perspective, right? You're like, oh, white heather. What? That's nice. Why is it a wedding tradition? Why is it good luck? It must be like a really nice story. And it's like, no, this woman's fiance died. That I, that's just so Scottish folklore to me. It's very typical. You you do realize there's just so much tragedy, and thing in, in, in all of these stories, like something horrible happens to somebody, mm-hmm. or it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't count. I, I wonder if that's just the one that everybody remembers. Well, I've read, well, I read through that book, plus another one that I was reading the other day there, and out of all of, there was a lot, a lot of romantic love stories that ended tragically, and I have found one that has ended well in both books. And I'm like, that's <laughs> it really the, does show you. <laughs> the Legends of Northeast Scotland, so basically avoid Northeast Scotland if, <laughs> if you, want you don't want to have a tragic ending but to your But definitely love story. read that book, because it's a very good book. I went to you in Aberdeen so I can verify yeah, everything ends tragically <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think this was actually printed by the University Press in Aberdeen yeah pr- printed by the Aberdeen University Press <laughs> yeah it's under my pen name yeah. no I actually do love his name though he's Fenton Wynas how brilliant is that <laughs>
this is a story of uh, love, treachery and tragedy surrounding one of the inhabitants of Bothwell Castle, a beautiful girl known as Bonnie Jean. Obviously, living in a castle like this, she was a noble's daughter. Jean had a responsibility to marry well. People like her, they couldn't bother about things as pointless as love. Jean's life was dedicated to the good of the family. But there was a problem. Jean's heart and everything that goes with it was already promised to somebody else. Her man was a lowly commoner from across the river in Blantyre, and Jean's parents were starting to line up her wealthy bachelors without any idea about her forbidden relationship. And Jean knew she had to do something soon. And to her surprise, a friendly monk from Blantyre Priory visited the castle and offered to help. He'd seen how the young lovers looked at each other, and he was said he was a hopeless romantic himself, so he had a plan. He was going to help the two escape together. Jean, she was just to keep her eyes peeled across the river every night until she saw a lamp shining in the darkness, and that was her sign. She was to sneak out of Bothwell Castle. The monk was going to handle everything else. So night after night, Jean gazed across the river Clyde, her eyes picking up any speck of light, playing tricks on her. And eventually she saw it, an unmistakable sign, clear as day. There were butterflies in her stomach and a young lady, she gathered her things and tiptoed out the castle, wincing at every rustle of her dress or creak of the old doors. Instead of finding her love waiting to whisk her away outside, she was a bit disappointed to find the monk just standing there on his own with a big grin on his face. That wasn't exactly what she was expecting, but the man, he reassured her, your other half, he's waiting on a horse down by the river, your new life together is going to begin very soon. So... She reached the riverbank. Jean was straining her ears and her eyes. She couldn't hear. There was no horse in the darkness. And then a barge appeared on the water. And her guide, the monk, revealed his true plan. Bonnie Jean's lover, he, he told him that she'd abandoned him. The monk was going to have her for himself. And then frozen with shock, Jean, she was bundled into the vessel. And her kidnapper shouted at the boatman, take them across to Blantyre Priory. Now, the weather had been calm all day, but suddenly the heavens opened and the Clyde it churned in a rage. The rain was lashing down, the water it was getting choppier and choppier. The boatman shouted, That's it, they're too heavy for the storm. If they didn't lighten the load soon, that was it, it was going to be too late. Now, a monk, he might have really wanted Jean. He wanted her badly, but he cared for himself more than anything. Without a second thought, he just shoved her over the side, down to drown in the river. As soon as the man of God had condemned that girl to her watery grave, the boatman pulled back his hood. It was the devil himself. And he grabbed a startled monk and he dragged him over the side to join his victim deep in the river Clyde. And immediately, the storm eased, the river flowing past Bothwell Castle was calm once again. But... Bonnie Jean isn't entirely gone. She returns to the high towers of Bothwell Castle on the anniversary of her death every year, which just happens to be the last day in October. So every Halloween, she can be seen there peering out from the top of the ruins across the Clyde, where a mysterious light can still be seen shining in the darkness. Oof! Yeah. Wow. Didn't expect the jewel deaths there. Yeah. Although I did suspect the monk from the start, I was like, I don't trust this guy. As <laughs> soon as you mentioned the monk, 
never trust a friendly monk. <laughs> it made me just as soon as you mentioned a monk, I was like, where else has been a love tragic love story or a monk that he's not done well in Romeo Juliet? <laughs> I'm, I'm not trust a monk after that one. But by, <laughs> by that extent, that monk was a, a pure godly man compared to this guy that's decided. Mm-hmm. I also like the um, you know, you'd think that the devil would be really cool with murder, but he was like, no. Well, maybe he just decided just... you're mine now. I think the devil's just like any time to trip up as some sort of man of God or somebody who's holier than thou. That's it. He's he's like yes. I, what I really want to know is what the monk's end game was because literally, if you've ever been to Bothwell Castle, Blantyre Priory, or what's left of it, is literally right there. Like you can see it. It's so close, and you think, surely somebody was going to find out. <laughs> and as well, surely all of the monks were not quite on board with this plan. <laughs> like. That is true, yeah. It does make it out like he's sort of a hermit. But it's the most tragic love story I could think of. Yeah. Did we find anything about the guy that she was meant to eventually meet? Or did he just disappear after they said she wasn't coming and she didn't like him anymore? She moved moved on. on. He just moved on. How do you believe that so easily? Like, would you not sort of go, that doesn't sound right. I'm going to speak to this gal. The one that I recorded on Monday and I'd written like the week and a bit prior, it one is that one as well. He came back from this big journey and came back and his mum had killed his bride to be because she didn't like him. But she just was like, Oh, he's been poisoned. It kind of left it ambiguous as to whether he knew it was his mum or not, but everybody knew. So it was like, and it was, they just wanted, went on. It was like, being young, he soon forgot about his (laughs) lady love and loved his mum. And I was like, I think I'd be pretty pissed off if my mum killed my fiance. Like, <laughs> it's, I, I imagine if you're in his position, you must kind of know that, you know, you you might like this girl that lives in the big castle, but it's never going to work out. Like you must have that idea in your head that eventually she's going to have to marry somebody rich and move away or or whatever. But also, I suppose there's, I don't know if anybody has ever heard it, because I don't know if this is a traditional ballad or just a modern song, but there's a song called, like, The Tragic Tale of Mariana, and it's all about how she's in love with this guy, John Sinclair, and the uh, the factor comes and says to her, you know, you're mine, I want you, and she says, no, no, me, you know, I'm already promised to John Sinclair, me and him have this, have this you know, deep, profound love, and you know the factor of rebuke is is raging and basically spreads rumours that this is a that Mariana's a witch and all these things and the whole community turn against her and she's eventually she's you know arrested and up to get burned and she's there on the um, on the thing ready to get you know her, her punishment handed out she's looking out looking for her her lover to come and rescue her you know assuming it's going to be like some film well not film because she probably doesn't know what films were but. And uh, there she sees John Sinclair standing next to the factor and he's in his brand new clothes with, you know, a big heavy pouch of gold and, and you know, he's basically there pointing at her and everything bought with... That's it. He's abandoned her. It's a brutal... It's a, it's, oh, it's a great song, but it's heartbreaking. Gee, that's like the worst... I was going to say that the worst tragic stories are the ones where they think you know someone died like what exactly the story you told graham someone dies and the other one thinks that they don't care and they don't love them um but that's 10 times worse 
They're all coming to me now. Now they're all flooding in, all these tragic... So I'm going to cry myself to sleep tonight, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'll briefly cover the, the concept of, of the sad one so that we can have the actual story be of, of the nice one. We can round off on a happy one <clears throat> so no one, like, so Graham doesn't have to cry himself yeah. to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, the sad one, the tragic one of the two that I was looking at originally when I was doing the research uh, is the Swan of Loch Sunark. Uh, it's one that Kathy wrote for our website and before that, I think the story dating back just before Victorian times is the earliest written records, although it's believed to be older and it's set in kind of times of clan chieftains and uh, when you were out hunting boars style of time of, of uh, history. Um, and in this one, it revolves around the classic of one higher born, one lower born. There's a um, the daughter of a farmer and the son of a chieftain. So in this one, the the two of their names I can never pronounce, but we're going to go and have a shot. It's Kiana, I think, and Idar Idiard or something like that. We'll call him son of chieftain and daughter of farmer for ease. <laughs> so they're, they're madly in love. They've, all, they've decided they're getting married. It's all a done deal as far as they are concerned. They go to talk to their parents. Her parents are fine with it, you know, marrying a chieftain. That's a well, chieftain to be. They're all happy enough. Um, but when they go to see his mum and dad, his dad was like, oh, on you go, whatever you feel like. But his mum has much bigger aspirations for him. She's not having any of this. So she forbids them to be together. She's not, not having this. You're not allowed to see her ever again. Um, and of course, being young loves, they've decided they're not, they're not sticking by that anyway. But they decide to be low-key about it. So they're seeing each other down by the lock at night. He keeps going out saying, oh, I'm just going hunting, just going to get your dinner, all that kind of stuff. And he normally comes back with some rabbits or that kind of thing to, to show that he had been. But every night he's going down by the shore to, to visit her and, and spend a bit of time there. Um, his mum does start to become a bit bit more weary, being like, you used to hunt on a couple of days a week, bring home stuff there. You're going every day of the week now. What's, what's going on here? Uh, and on one particular day, he'd spent a long day out. This time he was actually hunting because he decided he was getting this big cloak for his... his proposed bride-to-be although not by his mum's mum's approval um, so he wanted to find a, a big beast a, a boar or a bear to t to kill and, and make a cloak from that because it's a hereditary thing in their family that they all have these grand cloaks and his mum currently having the one that had been passed down from his grandmother uh, and their mother before them was never going to give it to his proposed bride-to-be so he, he decided he was getting his own um, and after all of these hunting trips, his, his mum was even more suspicious and she decided he, she was going out to follow him. She wasn't trusting where he was off to. And she notices them down by the lock, spending a bit of time together. It's very unhappy about this. She'd forbidden the whole thing. So, as any normal person would do, she decided she needed a witch to put a curse on her. So, <laughs> she wanders off to the little thatched cottage in the wood as is the place for all witches to live, uh, and finds the old woman and says, I want rid of her. And the old woman says, well, what? your life's grand, you're fine, you're the, the wife of a chieftain, everybody's healthy, your crops have been good, your hunt's going well, What are, what's wrong? And she says, I don't want this woman. And the witch being a witch was not too bothered with the pedantics, the morals of the situation, so she said, I want that cloak, I'll have that cloak as my payment. Um, and, and 
at that point, the mum needed to think a little bit. You know, it was a prized possession that had been passed down through the family. But she decided, you know, I really don't want this woman. Anything to get rid of this girl from my son, I'll do it. So the witch casts a spell. Um, and when the boy goes out to hunt next time, he, he doesn't find her down by the river and or down by the lock. And he goes out again the next day to hunt and not there. And continues on for a week. And then he, he'd kind of given up by this point. was unsure where she'd gone. So he decided to go hunting in the morning and maybe cheer himself up a bit, go along the water, see if he could find any geese or swans or anything like that to, to bring back for a big bird for the table. Uh, he gets to the, the banks of lock and spots this big, beautiful swan. He was like, oh, that'll, that'll do us well. That can be our, our big dinner for the weekend. You know, he could have all the extended family around it to everybody. So he brings out his bow and shoots it, clips it right under the wing, got it through the heart, done deal. But he hears a scream come out of it. He's like, swans don't scream. What was... Every swan flies off the lock with a scream. And there, on the shore, dying, was his lost love. She'd been turned into a swan and he'd just shot her. And as she dies, he pulls out his dagger and stabs himself. And it's rumoured from that day, no swans have rested on locks on her in reverence to their lost love. That, well, that was that one. <laughs> There's the, the... Yeah, I'm glad we didn't finish with that one. I'm glad that we decided to get that one out of the way. <laughs> I, I drove past the loch uh, a few weeks ago. I came. I didn't see a single swan, to be fair. We got photos from Rasheen when she was there with her family and not a single swan either. So it must be true. Yeah, exactly. That's proof. That is undeniable proof. Wait, do you want to tell your... Yeah tragic tale no this one's the happy tale oh sorry yeah we've, got, we've done the tragic one I might just read it as it is in the book because it's quite it's nicely written and it's not very long so I might just read this one as it is so this one's from the legends of northeast Scotland stories for the young and the not so young by Fenton Wynas it was originally published over two different volumes in the 1940s and this one's from the 70s um, so this story is called the lady of the tower in a secluded part of Aberdeenshire, not far from the village of Tarves, stands the ancient tower house of Chivas. It's a mysterious-looking building and was built nearly 400 years ago by a family called Grey. Long, long ago there lived within the tower house one Andrew Grey, baron of the barony of Chivas. He was a devout Roman Catholic, are were all the Greys, and he was a very determined man. His greatest pleasure was in enforcing his will upon other people. Andrew Gray had two children, George, who was eventually succeeded father as the Baron of the Barony, and Mary, for whose future her father had made definite plans. Although her father was a stern man, Mary enjoyed herself at Chivas mostly in the company of her brother, for they were very attached to each other. She had grown up to be a beautiful and clever, and was a true daughter of the Church of Rome. In the records of her time, there are many proofs of her fidelity to her faith, and it can be said with truth that she lived up to the family motto, Faith, a holy anchor. When Mary was 18 years old, she fell in love with her second cousin, with often the time in those days, <laughs> John Leslie, a fine-looking youth of her own age. They were very happy together, and everyone looked forward to the day that they would be married, for they were beloved of all. There was one, however, who did not wish the marriage. This was Mary's father, Andrew Gray. He did not think that John Leslie was good enough for his daughter, 
or, or for the daughter of the Baron of Chivas, and had selected for his future son-in-law the heir of a noble Catholic lord. On this marriage, his mind was set, and despite the pleadings of his daughter and his son, the marriage was arranged. As the day of her departure from Chivas came nearer and nearer, the more depressed Mary became. She did not like the nobleman that her father had selected to be her husband. He was old and thin and reputed to be very greedy. Besides, she was very much in love with a gallant John Leslie. Before Mary left home, she planted a tree to commemorate her happy youth at Chivas, saying that as her happiness grew, so would the tree flourish. Many of the tenantry who were present shed tears as they heard these words, for Mary was a great favourite of them. In due course, Mary Grey arrived at the castle of her future husband, only to find that he had been called away to do battle in one of the many feuds of the time. It was with a sinking heart that she crossed the threshold of her home, where it was obvious to her, from the moment of her arrival, that she was to be little better than a prisoner. She was watched day and night, and when she went out, which was seldom, she was strongly guarded, for her future husband feared she might escape. At Chivas, Mary Grey's tree wilted. The tenantry did what they could to make it grow, but to no avail, and it looked as though it was about to die. There was a great sorrow through the barony. Mary Grey, despite her guards, had always contrived to keep in touch with her lover, John Leslie, and one night, with his help, she escaped. All through the night they rode, and early next morning they were married at a tiny wayside chapel. Almost a year had elapsed since Mary had left the Terror House of Chivas. So, when she arrived at her old home as the wife of John Leslie, she found her father had died some months before, and her brother, George, was Baron of the Barony. There was great rejoicing at Chivas over her return, and feasting which lasted several days. But what of the tree? Needless to say, it flourished from the moment of Mary's escape, and today is one of the grandest trees in all the lands of Chivas. You'll see it if you ever go there. In the upper part of the Tower of Chivas, in a tiny room known as Mary Gray's, it is said that on the anniversary of her homecoming, the happy figure of Mary Gray can be seen approaching the house, crossing the courtyard and ascending the narrow spiral staircase to her room. But nobody is ever afraid of meeting Mary's ghost she's obviously happy and of course very beautiful so there's the story I wonder if that tree's still there since this was originally written in 1940 yeah. that's exactly what I was thinking I need to go find this tree I also love that it's still a ghost story yeah it there's ended, still a wee ghost at the it, end it ended happy but they were like we need to have a ghost yeah I think this might be a peculiar quirk of, of Fenton Linus, a lot of his stories, whether they need a ghost at the end or not, seem to acquire one. So <laughs> I think he was just like, people love ghost stories for sticking some of this in the end. <laughs> I just liked it as a happy, nice tale, and despite the enslaved husband, which for the rest of Scottish folklore would mean you would die a, a yeah, terrible death I think trapped there, in a tower. <laughs> there was a point where it could have gone one way, but it very. I, I, and there are a couple of stories in here that do kind of go that way of. I wonder... Just dying of frailty in a tower, so... I wonder, like, what we were saying earlier about the one about, um, her name, about, uh, about the White Heather, if that ending isn't the real ending. Yeah. If it's sanitised. I don't know. Possibly. 
But I don't know. I think the way he wrote this book, if it was changed in any way, it would have been before his time. Mm, because that's true. he's been quite blunt with a lot of the others. Yeah, it is. There's some pretty gruesome deaths in this book. I, I was just doing a very quick Google there to try and see if there's anything about this tree and if I can go visit it. And I was reading the Wikipedia entry for House of Chivas. And it says that um, the castle was burnt down in 1900. And it was subsequently... The, the guy, Thomas Cato, first Baron Cato, subsequently had the castle embellished by J. Fenton Wynas, an antiquarian architect. So as well as writing folk stories, he was also an antiquarian architect. Yeah, so either... So maybe maybe he heard the original story while he was doing that, it was running out, or maybe he the his contract was I need you to redo the castle and write me a folk story to go with it. I find it fascinating though that he was an architect and wrote ghost stories, because where do you see the most ghosts? Buildings. So maybe the story is actually that he worked in all these different buildings and just saw very spooky things when he was there. Oh, he's actually got a whole book called A Buckin Tower House, the story of the House of Shivas. Oh. Wow. Wow. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every single week with new folklore content from stories to analysis, so stay tuned. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to find out more about our charity, visit FolkloreScotland.com and if you're keen to become a voluntary contributor and would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at FolkloreScotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a link to a written version of this story in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.